Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Currently, we are in a series titled, It's Complicated, where we find biblical truth to give hope for the single, dating, and married. Hey, welcome to The Chapel Online. We are continuing in our series, It's Complicated, Hope for the Single, Dating, and Married. And today, we're talking about sex. And it's complicated. And it always has been complicated. I want to draw on something that C.S. Lewis wrote some 60 years ago. It just kind of encapsulates what many people, many Christians feel. He says, chastity is the most unpopular of Christian virtues. There's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or total abstinence. And then he insightfully says, now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that, that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it is now has gone wrong. Those are our options. And he concludes, one or the other has to be wrong. Of course, being a Christian, I think that the instinct is the thing that's gone wrong. I would agree. <laughs> I would agree. So we're going to be talking today about sex from a biblical perspective, and we cannot cover everything. So please see our resource page. It's on our website, and we've added to it for this message. And please consider the Create It for Connection um, workshop that's next week at our LSU location. Uh, Dr. D. Adams, 40 years as a professional marriage counselor and here in Baton Rouge, and her husband Pete will be hosting. I'll, that'll be uh, on our website too, so you can find out all the details. Now, before I go much further, I want to answer some essential questions. First, why are we even talking about this topic? Well, we believe that sex is a gift from God, and it is something sacred, and so we want to deal with it with great wisdom. And he has a lot to say about it in his word, so we're going to look at some of it. Secondly, a second question is, who are we talking to? Well, we're talking to you and anybody that cares to listen, but our primary audience is for those followers of Jesus who want to honor God with their sexuality. So they want to learn and they want to grow. And because we're talking about sex from a Christian point of view, there's some kind of big assumptions that we need to highlight that we're assuming. The first one is really important. It's just simply this. We're all sexually broken because we're all sinners. From the very opening chapters of the Bible, we see that sin robs us of our, our naivety, right? And it results in shame. And we all need grace. Secondly, the big assumption is that God knows that we're broken and he sent Jesus to rescue us from our brokenness. Sent him to die on the cross for us in our place so that we could have peace with him. Matter of fact, in the little letter of Galatians, the Apostle Paul describes Jesus this way. It says, he opens the letter and he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. I just love that verse, right? It's just, it's just beautiful. 
And it's our desire that everybody that's listening would know the beauty of being rescued from this present evil age through faith in Christ and would experience the freedom that comes along with him. Now, here's a big assumption. Christian sexuality without Christ is impossible. That's an assumption that we're making. Christian sexuality without Christ is impossible. So that kind of leads us to this, you know, to further explain it. We're trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to live the sexual lives that God has called us to live, right? Christian sexual purity is not only desired, but attained and maintained through the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't just naturally happen. It comes from God and it's fostered by Him. And finally, and this, is, uh, this one's kind of painful to talk about, we have to openly admit that the church has too often abused and hurt people sexually. The Me Too movement transitioned into the Church Too movement. And we've seen significant, important church leaders um, and pastors be stepped down and removed from their roles because of an affair or some harassment or some sexual misconduct. The result, sadly, is the truth and the power of the gospel is thrown into question. And as a church leader, I want to start today with a prayer. Usually when I ask folks to pray with me, it's I'm, I'm asking for God to work among us through his word. But I want to, I want to offer a prayer of confession for the church leaders that have failed. And I'm one of them. Not that I failed, but I'm part of the, I'm part of the church. Both the prophet Daniel and the prophet Nehemiah would include themselves as they confess the sins of the people. And it's in that vein that I want to offer a prayer because the church has just gotten it so wrong so much of the time. And you don't need to pray with me per se, but if you'd allow me to offer this prayer and then, um, then we'll continue. Well, Lord, I come to you and confess I confess that we, the leaders in your church universal, around the world, have grievously sinned against you and your gospel by participating in sexual sin. And then, too many times, just trying to cover it up, we've been more concerned about our reputation as leaders rather than your reputation as Lord We've led secret lives rather than open lives. We have not sought the accountability that we need. And when confronted, we've often not submitted to that accountability. We've not avoided sexual immorality as you did tell us to. We've minimized or excused immoral behavior. So I confess these wrongs and I ask that you be merciful to your church. We, we ask that you be kind as we turn and repent from these horrible sins. We seek your forgiveness, gracious God. Would you allow us to mend what has been broken, to make amends where we can without offering hurt? Would you allow us to live in the light rather than the dark? And I pray for your power and hope that we find in your word to bring salvation and freedom to us today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
things. So as we move forward, we kind of have this big theme over each sermon. The Creator knows what's best for His creation. And that's what we'll lean into today. Now, if you think about it just a little bit, I, I think we would all say we live in a little uh, sex-crazed culture. Everything seems to be sexualized. It seems to be commonplace, doesn't it? Right? And we live in this environment. It's kind of the air we breathe and we're all affected by it. So I want to look at some prevailing myths about sex that we might have become immune to, kind of crept into our thinking as we live and as we seek to follow Jesus. The first one is this. The sex is just a physical appetite. Just, it's just physical. And the basic thinking about this is that sex is very similar to our appetite for food, right? We need it to satisfy hunger. It's biological. I'm hungry, I eat. Additionally, I can satisfy that um, appetite however I desire. And now this means that really with whomever and whatever I fancy, right? In other words, I can have sex with whomever or whatever. It doesn't matter as long as it's consensual and it doesn't hurt the other person. That's kind of the idea behind it. Now, the Apostle Paul would uh, go around the world. He'd plant churches. And when he plant, he had to deal with sexual sin in one of the churches he planted in the global city of Corinth, right? And the Corinthians kind of used a similar train of thought. It's really from their culture too. Now, in the city of Corinth, um, it was a city full of prostitutes, kind of like Las Vegas. It was known for them. And men from the church were going to these prostitutes. And so the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is where we'll be today, he talks, he confronts this, and he works his way through their argument and his argument to present God's reality. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 and following, and in part of chapter 7, because these two chapters will be part of what we preach on the next two weeks. So I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And this is the Apostle Paul kind of quoting their line of thinking. Here's what it says. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I'm not going to be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. They're just saying, hey, my body, my choice, right? That's the argument we hear today. But unlike eating, there's something much more complex and mysterious that happens when two people have sex. Deep down inside, we seem to know that there's more going on than simply the satisfying of an appetite, right? It involves another person, even with pornography, which we'll talk about in a minute. And here are some questions that kind of help me illustrate the point, right? Here's the first one. Why do I have sexual regrets if I'm just satisfying a craving, right? Many people have that. Now, sure, you can have regrets if you eat too much canned chicken and your stomach's too full. But that's not what I'm talking about. Something that's deep, that's, that affects our emotions. Here, here's, a, here's another question. Why, why are most people upset when they're cheated on? Right? It seems to point to there's something more going on here. If I call home and say to my wife, hey, listen, I just stopped by and picked up something to eat on the way home. I don't need dinner. It doesn't destroy our marriage. But if I say, listen, I just had I got hooked up on the way home, well, that's going to be pretty detrimental, right? The purpose for sex is to reflect and enhance the intimacy between two people, not satisfy the appetite of one, right? Additionally, for Christians, our bodies aren't simply for us to satisfy. See, for the Christian, and we'll see this played out here in this passage, Christ died for us in his body, 
so that our body might be raised with him. We're not just spiritual beings, but we're also physical beings too. And his redemption applies to both. Now, let's look at verse 13 and 14 together. You save food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he'll raise us too, right? Our body and what we do with it are first to be for the Lord. He's number one, as we've said throughout this. And so he's just saying, hey, it's more than something that's just physical. It's emotional and it's spiritual. And, and so it leads us kind of to a, a, a second myth that sex um, is recreational without consequence, or you might just say casual without consequences. It's just, just something, you know, we do. Now, today, in our world, through contraception, abortion, medication, we can l eliminate almost any physical illness or unwanted pregnancy related to sexual activity. We can kind of just, it doesn't matter. But that's not true when it comes to our emotional and mental consequences that can be associated with, you know, casual sex. You know, I think of, I think of that as the basis for every country song I've ever heard, right? I've been cheated on, my heart's broken, my home is empty, my dog is gone. Yeah. There's something more going on. And for the Christian, this casual sex is detrimental to our relationship with Jesus. And the passage explains why. Verse 15, do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know? Evidently, Paul had taught them, but maybe, maybe you don't know that when you accept Christ, he places you through the power of his spirit into his body. There's this spiritual connection and he gives us the Holy Spirit to work in. So we're united in a very unique way with Christ. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 would say it this way, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He, <laughs> right? Would you take Christ long for a hookup? Uh, no. But if he's in me, then he is with me. And that's what he's trying to point out here, right? Not only, not only uh, that, but there's a mixing, right, of, the, of, of our bodies and sexual uh, activity. There's a powerful uniting and it's by design. It's supposed to be super powerful. And by design, God has only created one place that can really contain it, and it's marriage. I want to show you a couple pictures of the same thing, right? The first one is fire in its proper place, a fireplace, right? It offers warmth. It sets the mood. It provides comfort. Here's the second one, fire out of place, unconfined. It's destructive. Actually, this is a picture of the Dixie Fire in California. It's destroying so much. Out of context and out of control, sex can also burn up relationships and life. Now, let's go back to our passage because we're going to see even more that it's not just without consequence. It, he, he keeps going with another, do you not know? Here's what it says in verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself 
where the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And there's this contrast. He's not saying they're married. He's just saying, gosh, God, the point is the power of sex, God's purpose for it is designed to create this enduring bond. And you can't just, you know, hook up with a prostitute because you're, you're connected to God. Now, there are a lot of things going on in this passage. There is the trafficking of women, the objectification of women. But Paul's primarily concerned with here is that how this, this act violates the relationship with Christ. It's not just casual without consequences, right? There are serious consequences, and they're in the relationship with God. And it's, it's based on the reality that Christ, his work for us and the Holy Spirit's uh, dwelling in us. So Paul warns us in verse 18. He says this, flee from sexual immorality. See, all other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Right? There's a, there's a problem for the Christian. It isn't my body, my choice. It's I'm connected to Christ and so I'm not free to just do whatever I want with my body. There's a difference. And our sexual activity is with our body. And our bodies have been redeemed by Jesus and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And this means that sexual sin is going to affect that relationship. It also affects our relationships with others. So he also tells us in this warning what to do when, tempta um, when tempted by sexual sin. Run, flee, get out of there. Don't bow up and say, I got this. You don't have it. Don't rationalize it with some kind of fancy reasoning. Run! And one of the greatest temptations that's facing Christians and people is pornography. It's a huge issue. And it's a huge issue in the church. And I just want to park there for just a minute, okay? Now, his, historians disagree on the number of prostitutes in the city of Corinth the time of Paul's writing. Some have suggested up to 1,000. But it doesn't even compare to the number of people engaging in pornography in the church regularly. Now, there are many sexual temptations. There's adultery, there's hookups, there's same-sex attraction, which we'll look at a little bit next week. But the succumbing to the temptation of porn by the followers of Jesus has a unique destructive power in lives and in marriages. And the temptation is intensified because we can do it all in secret right there on our smartphone. And some people will go, wait, yeah, you know, this is me in private. But Jesus, he warned about those trying to sidestep, you know, God's desire for sexual purity in his teaching on the summer and on the mount. He said, listen, if a person is looking at another digitally or actually for the purpose of lust, then they are just as guilty as committing adultery as the person that does that. That's a strong statement, Matthew chapter 5. And that is the exact purpose of pornography. Now, the statistics are staggering. Nothing is searched more for on the internet than porn. Pornographic sites actually constitute 30% of the internet traffic, right? More traffic than Amazon, Netflix, Twitter combined. And the industry is so lucrative. Take uh, professional football, professional baseball, and professional basketball and their revenue. It outpaces that. Take the big television networks, ABC, CBS, NBC. It outpaces all of that. It is unbelievably uh, lucrative. 
and it's not without victims, right? The demand for pornography and sexual uh, exploitation are directly linked to trafficking, human and sex trafficking. So if you're against sex trafficking, right, and you believe people are made in the image of God and you have a daughter, or if you want your wife or spouse never to be violated and you're losing the battle to porn, you're also living a life of contradiction. It's, be honest, it's hard to stop. It's really hard to stop. And there's a reason for that. Because the viewing of pornography literally, literally rewires our brain. It works both as a stimulant, you know, like with dopamine to dump more addictive, it's more addictive than meth, some people say, and a depressant, it's like a depressant, more addictive than heroin. It, it, and some people just call it, it's the new drug, right? And before you know it, you need it. And not only do you need it, but as your tolerance increases, like that of a drug, you're gonna need more and more. <laughs> it eliminates our ability to be sexually satisfied. And ultimately, it'll destroy the relationships with those we love most. Viewing porn will cause us to objectify women, men, even our wives. We no longer see people in the image of God. We see people as objects for satisfaction. And if you're married, you may think, I got this. I can keep it separate from my relationship with my spouse. But you can't. Our sexuality, our physical life, our spirituality, they're all interconnected. So, men, husbands, let me encourage you. Do whatever it takes. Flee. Run. Get, get filters from your, for your computer. Go to our website and you'll see some resources there. Throw away the smartphone. Get a dumb phone, right? Seek therapy. Probably the hardest thing to do and maybe the most important is tell somebody, a trusted friend, about your struggle. Bring it into the light. Seek accountability. Women, wives, do the exact same thing. Watch what you're putting into your mind, however it comes. A lot of times it comes from reading. You know, um, the pornographic novel, Fifty Shades of Grey, was read by more women than men. It sold 100 million copies worldwide. And of course, it was made into a movie. And it left many counselors and psychologists confused because it was so abusive. One psychologist described the book as a manual for manipulating and abusing women. <laughs> However, women devoured the book. Just kind of mind-blowing. So in fleeing temptation at the first glimpse, you know, like getting off on a race. When do I go? It, it means that you learn yourself, your patterns of weaknesses and your sin patterns, and you know your situation. I don't need to be here. This isn't a good place for me. I don't need to have this conversation with this person, right? I don't need to look at it, right? So knowing yourself and your situation. And we have to learn to control our sexual drives or they will control us. And the Apostle Paul addresses this issue directly in another letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says this, It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that means holy, set apart for Him, that you should avoid a sexual immorality, that each of you should learn, there's our word, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like pagans, like people who do not know God. You know God. You know what he's offered you in terms of resources and forgiveness and a way to get on track and a way to, right? If you don't learn to control it, 
it will control you. And I meet so many men that have never learned to control their sexuality. <laughs> and it says, hey, do this. One of the acronyms that I like is from AA, people that are struggling with alcohol, knowing themselves. It's called HALT, H-A-L-T. Don't get too hungry. Don't get too angry. Don't get too lonely. Don't get too tired. Because if you do, you're going to be easily tempted to go where you don't want to go. Now, our passage, this section, chapter 6, ends with this way. Another question. Verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Boom. There it is. Things we don't want to hear. We're not our own. <laughs> right? We don't want to hear that. We want to live independently. We don't want to have to answer to another. And God said, hey, I've redeemed you. I've redeemed your body. I've indwelled you. And I'm changing you. And so we, we begin to rest in that. So sex isn't just a physical thing. And it does have consequences. Now let's consider some truths about sexuality. Just a couple of them. First of all, sex is given as a gift within the context of marriage. It's a gift. Now, you know, if, if you, we even saw Paul allude to it when, he's, when he goes all the way back to Genesis, right? The creation account and explains this is from God. So we'll go right there. This is what Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says. This is why a man will leave his father and mother and be united to the, his wife and they become one flesh, right? It's a gift from God. Now, Christians have, been, have had the reputation of being against sex, and maybe at some points that was the case, but it doesn't need to be. We're really, we should be pro-sex because it's from God to us within the confines and design God has given us. As we've said, the, the Creator knows what's best for His creation, and God gave us this as a gift. And he, He's the one that said, be fruitful and multiply. And marriage is designed to be a place that can contain our sexuality, and can be bring protection for children that are born out of it, right? It was given as a, it's more than just procreation. It's a gift that expresses intimacy, right? And intimacy means that we're really deeply and fully known. We're, you know, that's when you fully comprehend your spouse. And God wants us to experience intimacy with our spouses. Now, many people see sex as kind of the catalyst for intimacy. That's where it all begins. And actually, I, sex is most powerful when it's a result or the completion of intimacy. We want to, you know, merge together because we love each other so deeply. And we are to enjoy God's gifts. Imagine being completely fearless and passionate, fully coming together as a couple, not just physically, but also emotionally and relationally and spiritually. A beautiful mingling of souls. It's something to be fully experienced and enjoyed. And this is truly losing ourselves kind of in another, which leads us to this last truth. Sex is about giving, not getting, right? We will not get to intimacy by taking or withholding sex, right? For example, um, the hookup culture is just the opposite of that. It's all about taking. 
It's two people taking rather than giving. It's not about, you know, it is about personal satisfaction, personal gratification. It's not about the other. And it isn't at all what God wants for his followers. So I'm going to go into chapter 7 where Paul is going to address this. And I want to read it from a paraphrased version of the message because I think it captures it so beautifully, what's said. Here's what it says. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and to provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of neutrality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Abstaining from sex is permissible for some time if both agree to it, and if it is for prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. Beautifully said. So, husbands, this means that intimacy and sex starts way before the bedroom. You know, maybe you've heard the illustration, men are like microwaves. It just takes them seconds to kind of heat up into a passion. And women are like a crock pot. They slow and simmer. You learn to stir the crock pot, right? So building intimacy will take more time and intentionality for her. Look for ways to serve and to give to her. Not to manipulate, but to serve. Help where, with kind words. This means that the back rub stays on the back, right? This means, hey, I'm going to help with the end-of-the-day chores that you usually do that I don't do. Maybe that, maybe that includes uh, cleaning or taking the kids and putting them to bed. After your long day at work, I'm going to let you take a break while I do those duties. It means love notes. It means kind words. It means you start on Monday for your date on Friday, right? It's about giving love, not just receiving sexual pleasure. And wives, this passage isn't describing what some have referred to as duty sex, right? Duty sex is have-to sex. It doesn't build intimacy. It actually destroys it because it leaves women feeling objectified, used, and unequal. These verses actually have been misused to suggest that if a husband requires it, the woman must give it. And this isn't uh, giving, it is getting at that point. Now, men like to say, I have a need. Now, I want you to know that no one has ever died because of lack of sex, right? We die because of lack of food and water. That's a need. Men do have a sex drive, but they need to learn to deal with it themselves, not just burden their wife for the solution. Now, clearly, in a loving relationship, there's an occasion where we're concerned about each other's drives and desires. The idea that is put forth right here in this chapter was completely foreign to the Roman world, right? It's about neutrality. In that time and space, women were like slaves. They could be sold, they were like property. And here comes the Apostle Paul saying, not as you follow Jesus. You have care and concern for each other. Could there be a more potent message for the world today than that? Right? It isn't talking about 
taking or withholding sex. There's no room for that in the Christian home, right? Those are power plays, not acts of love. Taking isn't intimate, it's demanding. Withholding isn't intimate, it's controlling. But what builds intimacy is working through life and expectations with openness and honesty and vulnerability. This leads to intimacy. This kind of stirs the crock pot, right? The latest research actually shows that duty sex will actually reduce a wife's sexual desire, which shouldn't be of any surprise, right? We all become much less motivated to participate where our participation is obligatory, when we have to. Over an exterior period of time, she's going to grow less and less interested in sex, not more. When your drive becomes her obligation, it just doesn't build intimacy. Men, think about that. But what if, what if we got to the point where serving one another was the goal, not satisfying our desire? That's a picture of uh, being mutually concerned about each other, right? It's a picture of Jesus ready to give himself. And what if, we became, what if that became the goal of marriage? As God's gift, sex is to be enjoyed as we serve each other. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Not because we have to, but because we get to. So, I want to reiterate, create it for connection. This coming week, please check out our website for the dates and details. Can't encourage it enough as you navigate through this because it's going to help you build intimacy, right? Now, our mistakes in our sexual life can leave such huge negative results, right? You might be thinking, is there hope for me? Because of sexual sin and sexual brokenness, it often leaves us full of shame. And I want you to understand God's solution to shame. Now, people deal, uh, deal with shame. They don't simply think they've done something wrong, but they think they are wrong. Shame is feeling dirty. And it says, I am what I am. I can't change. I'm hopeless. Shame leads to an evaluation of ourselves that rests solely on the evaluation of our past behavior being measured only by our own memory. Shame never leaves us. It often leaves us with a deep, crippling sense of insecurity, and we tend to withdraw and become isolated. Now, God's answer to shame is regeneration. It isn't a self-improvement program, nor is it a clean-up campaign for our sinful nature. Regeneration is nothing less than the impartation of new life. Our ultimate need for intimacy isn't found in sex, but our Savior. That's a strong statement. Now, I want, I want to read a passage out of Titus that just explains this. It's just beautifully stated in the message. Listen to what it says, and it offers us this hope of new life. He says, it wasn't long ago that we were stupid and stubborn, dupes of sin, ordered every which way by our glands, going around with a chip on our shoulder, hated and hating back. But when God, our kind and loving Savior God, stepped in, he saved us from all that. It was all his doing. We had nothing to do with it. He gave us a good bath and we came out of it new people washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. Our Savior Jesus poured out new life so generously. 
God's gift has restored our relationship with him and it's given back our lives. And there's more life to come and eternal life. Wow, that's just a powerful passage. So if you have never trusted in Jesus, would you trust him today, believing that he can give you new life, can deal with the shame that you might feel? See, our new life replaces our old one. It actually allows us to begin again and it moves us toward maturity. Now, it's gonna require that you, that you lay down your failures and your shames, that you, that you bring your brokenness to him, believing that he died for you, that he rose from the dead for you, that he, he did what he said he did, and he did it for you. Today, hearing all of this, you might just feel like the woman who was caught in adultery and brought to Jesus. Now, I don't know how you catch one person in the act of adultery, but it was a setup for him, and it put her in a place of shame. But there she was, standing before Jesus and a crowd, shamed by the social media of the day, the town square, and Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground. Many biblical scholars think he's just taking the focus off of her. And then Jesus made the statement, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And eventually everyone left and he said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And then he said this, that neither do I condemn you. But he added what some of you need to hear. Now, go now and leave your life of sin. That's what some of you need today. Like her, you need to repent of your sin and you need to move away. You need to move toward God and toward renewal and experience the forgiveness. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, right, of all unrighteousness. That's about shame. So I don't know where you are today and what burden you're carrying, but God wants to bring regeneration to your life if you don't know him and then restoration to your life if you do. And it starts by a humbling of your heart and praying to him. And I would say it ends with telling somebody we need Christ's power and his community to walk through this life. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so very much for Jesus who came to rescue us from all of the confusion, who comes to give us brand new life, allowing us, as it were, to just start again with new and different life, motivating and animating our behavior. I pray for those that need to trust him today, that they would bow the knee of their heart right where they are and say, Lord Jesus, today I need to trust you. I lower my guard and I declare my trust in you that you died on the cross for me and you rose from the dead and I'm so grateful that you'll give me new life. And I believe that you will and that you'll restore me. And Lord, for those others that know you, that just need to repent and turn back to you, I pray that you'd give them that grace, that they would not only tell you that they're ready to come back, but they would find a community of faith, of loving brothers and sisters that can walk with them to reach a place of health, that they can begin to restore their relationship with you and with one another. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you have any questions about any of this, you can uh, contact us directly at connect at thechapelbr.com. 
email address. And if you need some help and you're not sure where to turn, we'd love to help you if we can. Just shoot us an email and we'll reply back. May God richly bless you this week. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com. Thank you.